Uh, it's, a, it's a love song between a man and a woman as they pass through various stages in their relationship. And today, in our text, we at least at last uh, arrive at their wedding night, or wedding day and their wedding night, both those things in our text. Now, up until this point, the woman in particular has repeatedly been crying out to the daughters of Jerusalem, her, her primary audience, saying, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Well, here on their wedding day and their wedding night, the couple is now very eager to see that love has been awakened in every way and love pleases. And while our text today is not sexually explicit, the woman's beauty in this passage gets an awful lot of attention. And so we are going to be spending time looking at that ourselves. So today's text, friends, is about the true beauty of awakened love in its time. So let's start by reading chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. This is, again, page uh, 526 in the church Bibles. What is that coming up from the wilderness, like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon has made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness, of the gladness of his heart. So the first verse we read here in our text in verse six contains the key question for understanding our entire text today. What is that coming up from the wilderness? However, that's actually not the best translation of that question. In particular, the word that our translation, the the English Standard Version, renders what, as in what is this coming up, is actually the word who in the Hebrew. And, And more notably, it's the singular feminine who. So the question in Hebrew is actually, who is this one woman coming up? And we're not told much about her here, except that she's perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and the fragrant uh, powders of a merchant. So the, the question really being asked here is, who is this one woman who smells really good? That's the question. Now, what's awkward, and, and, and the reason that the ESV translators actually use the word what here, is that the seeming answer to that question is not about a nice-smelling woman at all. Rather, the answer given in verses 7 through 11 is, look, it's Solomon's bed. <laughs> That's what the, the, um, the, the strange words, the word litter and carriage are, are actually, it means a bed. That's what, that's what the word is referring to. Now, I grant you, it's a really, really nice bed. And it's surrounded by warriors with swords and things like that. It's a really nice bed. And that's weird. Like, how can the question be, who is this really nice smelling woman? And the answer is, it's Solomon's bed. That's why even the ESV translators are not sure 
what to do with that. Well, here's what I think is happening and why that's phrased that way. In verse 6, the narrator is asking the question, who is this nice-smelling woman who is coming up? And in order to highlight what she is, the narrator first describes what she is not. And more specifically, in order to describe what the true beauty of this woman is, the narrator first describes the false beauty that she is not. Let me show you what I mean. See, it's easy to read the Song of Solomon as being about Solomon. But there are actually only three times in the entire book where Solomon shows up. The first is, is in verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon, Solomon's, which is why we call it the Song of Solomon often. Another place is right here in these verses we just read. And the last one is in chapter 8, in which Solomon is very clearly not the male speaker in this book. In fact, Solomon is contrasted with that male speaker. The woman says, my man is so much better than Solomon. And besides, if you you know Solomon's life story, if you've read about him in the Bible, you know that he's hardly the model for faithful love and commitment that's actually encouraged throughout this book. Like the woman here repeatedly says in Song of Solomon, don't awaken love until it pleases. Where Solomon's attitude in his life is, I awaken what I want, yo. Like, if if that girl is pretty, I'll take her. And he does. And he does that literally a thousand times. So Solomon is not a good role model for us here, friends, when it comes to marital faithfulness and love. He's, he's the bad guy. He's the contrast. And that's why I think our text describes Solomon's bed. His really, really nice bed and his mighty men with their swords. And it's all beautiful, but here's the thing. The original question was, who is this one one woman who smells really good? This ain't her. Rather, this is the bed of one man that honestly smelled a lot like sex. And it all looks great on the outside, but it's not real. So, so... If this isn't her, where's the real thing? Where's the true beauty? Who Who is this one woman who smells really good? Well, let's continue reading in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, in which the man, who has not spoken in quite some time in the song, at last speaks again. And he is going to very clearly answer all of our questions. So let me read verses One through seven. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like the uh, the flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone, and on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. 
Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Let's pause there. This man has no doubt who that one really nice smelling woman is. It's, it's her woman. He knows her well. It's his woman. He knows her well. And he thinks her flawless. And here he carefully catalogs her flawless beauty from her eyes down to her chest. Now, elephant in the room here. Is that okay? Is it okay for him to be looking at her and, and talking about her breasts? Well, the answer is yes. But it, it may surprise us a bit until we realize that, that somehow here, this couple is married now. But we missed the wedding. And, and suddenly it's the wedding night. In fact, the only reference to a wedding taking place was, was actually uh, back in verse 11. And that was in contrast. That was about Solomon's wedding. That was contrast to what real weddings are supposed to be and look like. So, so, so no doubt... We, we probably expected something more here to, to talk about the wedding, like a, maybe maybe a, a do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife kind of line, or at least like, you know, Canon and D should be playing in the background or something, right? But like, it's not there. All we get is this line about Solomon's wedding, and then in chapter 4, verse 8, which we haven't actually read yet, we're going to read it in just a second, this man is calling his woman his bride. So So somehow, friends, we missed the wedding. Whoops. But, but perhaps that's not altogether strange, really. Because we also didn't actually see the very first wedding either. Way back in the Garden of Eden, there was a man and a woman. And there was no wedding ceremony that we are told about. And yet suddenly she's being called his bride. We missed that one too. Man, we're constantly running late. So... In both that instance and in this instance, we started with a man and a woman, and then poof, she's being called his wife. So apparently the most important thing about marriage isn't the wedding. Instead, it appears that what matters more is the true love of this couple and even the true beauty of this one really nice-smelling woman. And here in our text, in these seven verses we just read, this man describes seven ways, seven parts of his bride's body, which he finds altogether beautiful and utterly flawless. He says that her eyes are like doves. He's echoing, in fact, a term that the woman herself used to describe him back in chapter 2, verse 14. He then describes her hair as a flock of goats and her teeth as shorn sheep, which probably wouldn't fly today if you try using that language. And you're like, what's going on here? What's he talking about? It does sound strange, but please remember that this woman is a shepherdess. Okay, so, so I think what's happening is this, this wise and loving man is entering her world and drawing out imagery that she would be very familiar with. Like if I wanted to compliment my, my wife, Allie, I think if I were being really wise and thoughtful and writing poetry, I would use musical terms, right? Like that would be a way of showing I get you. I understand your world. He then continues down to describe her, her lips and her mouth and, and, and her cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate. And again, that may sound odd, but he, he's, he's probably observing that she's blushing and, and understandably, right? Like you would be blushing too in this moment. 
Some of you already are. <laughs> and so, so it's, it's understandable. He then describes her neck as the tower of David and on it hang a thousand shields. And I, I think he's complimenting her strength and her dignity, perhaps referencing a, a necklace she's wearing. That would somewhat look like that. And finally, while, while verse five may bring still further blushing to his or her cheeks and, and maybe ours as well, this man does not shy away from describing her breasts. But what he says of them is that they're like two fawns. Why would he say that? What's he going for? Well, here in Pennsylvania, the heart of Pennsylvania, we are familiar with deer, if not gazelles, right? So let me ask you, how often do you see fawns? Once in a while, but they're pretty rare, right? You hardly ever actually see the fawns. So, so the, the idea is, is that fawns are beautiful, but they're very often hidden and rarely seen. This man, I think, is appropriately appreciating the God-given beauty of her every body part, but is also here complimenting her modesty as well. As her husband, he now gets to see these fawns. But no one else did, and no one else will. And his eyes linger there a bit, perhaps, as he says in verse 6, that he will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Yes, this is his one woman who smells really good. To him, she looks even better than she smells. Now, friends, without, without doubt, this woman feels insecure about her body, but she needn't, for her new husband has found her to have truly flawless beauty. Now, is this woman literally flawless? No, surely not. She lives in a fallen world, and like all of us, she has blemishes. She even began the song, if you remember, by asking others not to gaze at her because she was well aware of her physical flaws. Yet here, as her new husband is most clearly gazing at her, his conclusion in verse 7 is that there is no flaw in her. But that's not all. Not only is her beauty flawless, but it is also intoxicating. So let's continue reading to see how he describes this, picking up again in verse 8 of chapter 4. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the, len the den of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. We'll pause there again. So I'd mentioned earlier that, that there's reason to believe that this couple is married now, and here is the clearest evidence. Here the man calls her his bride five times in just four verses. And, and he'll do so once more to start our next section of text as well. And this is in fact the only place in the entire song where he does that, where he calls her his bride. So 
that seems notable. Now, notably also is that he calls her his sister a couple times, which sounds a bit odd, but it's likely referring to familial closeness. Your, your family sees you all the time, right? In all kinds of settings, and no one ever thinks that odd or inappropriate. But until a couple is married, if they spend too much time together, and perhaps especially in this culture, that would be thought of as somewhat scandalous, uh, if, if not a little concerning, right? And in fact, in another place in the song, it's the woman who says, oh, that you were like a brother to me. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. So she gets that. So, so here today, now that they are married, there's no more despising, only open love and affection of which this couple has plenty of that. And so this man is calling her now to leave her home and come be with him. Come with me, he says in verse 8. Come with me. And he tells her why. Her love and her beauty are altogether intoxicating to him. See, verse 9 says twice that you have captivated my heart, which, which can perhaps be better rendered, you drive me crazy. And not in the you annoy me sense, maybe that'll come later, but like right now, you drive me crazy. I can't think straight around you. I'm like intoxicated. I feel inebriated. Her presence uh, around him is as inebriating to him as any alcoholic drink. And in fact, in verse 10, he compares her in just that way. How much better is your love than wine? And he goes on to describe how that intoxication is overwhelming his every sense. He sees her beauty. He smells her fragrance. He hears the sweet words that are under her tongue. And yes, he even tastes the nectar on her lips. Friends, it seems like all of his senses are intoxicated, but one sense is still missing. And that's touch. He's not yet touching her. And that's because that is the most sacred, the most honored, and the most protected element of a marital relationship. And here, it's been carefully guarded. And so this man is going to devote a whole section of text here to appreciating the guarded beauty of this woman's body. So let me read on verses 12 through 15. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. Here, this man is describing his bride as a locked garden or a sealed spring. So there is life-giving sustenance, and there is true beauty within. But this garden is not accessible to just anyone, but only to the one who has the key. This woman, friends, has kept herself locked because the time had not yet come. But now they are married. He is hers, and she is his, and so... She has granted this man full and complete access. And what does he find inside her garden? There are flowing streams and fountains of living water, as well as a long list 
of the choicest fruits and spices, right? The imagery here, friends, is again of the Garden of Eden, of of paradise and perfection where all the delightful things for the eyes and for all of the senses grew together. Eden was the birthplace of the first man and the first woman. And in that place, the Lord God had created for that couple every good and beautiful thing they could want. And out of it flowed rivers of life-giving water. Even though the word rendered orchard here in verse 13 is, is the Hebrew word for paradise. Friends, the man of our text is hearkening back to that first garden where the first man and the first woman were naked and unashamed. And he is saying that in a very real way, he and his bride are being invited to return to that place. Through the physical and sexual union of this married couple, the true beauty of paradise is reopened to them. Not perfectly. Not ultimately but truly, nevertheless. So at last, beginning with chapter 4, verse 16, and ending with chapter 5, verse 1, this this final section of text we're going to read together, this text lies at the exact center of the song, with 111 verses or lines of poetry beforehand, and 111 verses or lines of poetry on the other side. This is right in the middle. This, friends, is the centerpiece of the song where love is at last awakened. So let's, let's read this. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. The woman says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And he replies, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the community says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. To this point, friends, up to this point in the the song, we've heard again and again the refrain offered to the daughters of Jerusalem that they not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. But now, friends, the time has come in verse 16, and it is time for love to awaken. The man entreats the winds to awaken and blow upon his garden. And notice that his bride is no longer called a locked garden as she was back in verse 12. Now she is his garden. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 1 there, in those 16 Hebrew words that the man speaks, fully half of them are the word my. My garden, my sister, my bride, my myrrh, my spice, and so on. She is his. And lest there be any confusion or any doubt whatsoever as to whether this man is is in some way forcing himself upon this woman, the woman herself declares that this is altogether consensual and desirable when she responds, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. She is completely his. He is completely hers. And even the community itself celebrates the true beauty of this awakened love with the words, eat, 
friends, drink and be drunk with love. This is the one place, the one place in the entire Bible where drunkenness is encouraged. It is celebrated because this, this couple, this community, this book wants us to know without question that there is nothing more intoxicating than the true beauty of awakened love in its time. So how do we apply this? How do we apply what we've read this morning? Let me suggest one application for the married, one application for the unmarried, and then one more for all of us. So for the married, here's your application. Slow down and enjoy one another. Slow down and enjoy one another. See, most newly married couples are all Twitter-pated and gushy and just plain happy to be together, right? You've seen it. It's both sweet and disgusting sometimes. But praise God, it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. And we certainly see that to be true of this couple here in this text, don't we? But when, but when the actual and proverbial honeymoons are over, it sure is easy to get caught up in careers and child-rearing. And this is Grace Fellowship Church, more child-rearing and more child-rearing. And, and, and even good things like serving at church. Like, we're talking about good things, friends, but we get caught up in that. And, and in doing all manner of really good and God-glorifying kingdom service, these formerly Twitter-pated couples can all too easily begin acting as roommates and miss the true beauty of our spouses. So let me adjure you, O married couples, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that once you stir up and awaken love and get married, keep on stirring. Continually awaken love. Choose intentionally to slow down in our frantic lives and enjoy one another. And friends, I confess that I'm as in much need of hearing this as any person in this room. This, this text convicted me a great deal in this regard. See, I have an absolute treasure in my wife. You guys know her. You know what a delight she is. I know it even more. Her, her beauty is truly flawless to me. She is delightfully intoxicating. And though she'd very understandably grabbed the attention of other men before me, she kept herself guarded and did not awaken love until it pleased. Thank you, Jesus. And, and for years before I even met Allie, I prayed for God to give me a woman like that. And then when, when, when God in his mercy opened my eyes to, to notice Allie, I pined over her for months. Some of you knew me then. It was kind of pathetic. Uh, but like, I just, I just, it was all gushy and like everything she did was amazing. And, 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 and I hoped against all hope that maybe I'd possibly have a chance with this woman. 
And then by God's sovereign, mind-blowing grace, I asked, I asked her out and she said, yes! God works all things together for good. And then as soon as humanly possible, I asked her to marry me. And again, she said, yes! God is good. Friends, right here before me is the woman of my dreams. Truly beautiful in every way. And yet, how easy it is, how easy it is for me to let days and weeks go by without slowing down and enjoying the woman of my dreams that God gave me. So my fellow married couples, can you relate Does the busyness of the good things in your schedule keep you from enjoying the intoxicating beauty of your spouse? If so, would you join me in committing to slow down? Let's slow down and enjoy the true beauty of our spouses. Now, let me be clear Unless I be misunderstood that slowing down isn't all there is to having a healthy marriage. So if your marriage is struggling, let me encourage you to please take advantage of the wisdom and the experience of other godly couples in this church for counsel and encouragement. And men, I I will do a plug here for the men's pod on marriage, which will be starting this spring. Consider checking that out. But but even if all those things aren't enough, and if your marriage is still struggling even after seeking help, please let your shepherding elder know about that. Let us know way earlier, way before you even feel like, maybe this is coming down the pike. I might need some help here. Wherever it is, we would love to be able to recommend some great Christian marriage counselors that God has blessed us with in this area, and the church can even help financially if need be, because your marriage is important. It's very important to us, and our, and our investment in your marriage is completely worth it. Okay, now, I promised an application for our unmarried uh, members and, and those who are joining us here today. So here's, here is your application from our text. Don't settle for counterfeit love. Don't settle for counterfeit Love. I know that can be so difficult to see couples around you dating and getting engaged and getting married and you're always the bridesmaid and never the bride. And you may be tempted. No, you will be tempted. You surely are tempted to give up and buy into the cries of our culture that say dating is a fool's errand. Marriage doesn't work. Divorce rate is sky high. What are your chances? Just enjoy the benefits of intimacy and sex without all those complications. You don't have to wait. You shouldn't have to wait for good things. And that probably sounds appealing, doesn't it? And and if so, you're tempted to lower your standards and consider guys or girls that you know aren't great, but who sure do pay you a lot of attention, or maybe even just a little attention, But even that little attention sure does feel nice, doesn't it? 
But please, friends, remember that not everything that glitters is gold. Here in our text today, just before we got to the most passionate section of the entire song, we were confronted with Solomon. Remember? And he sure does seem like a good catch. He's rich, he's handsome, and he sure knows how to make a girl feel loved. But it's empty. It's false. It's counterfeit. And all those women who ended up as Solomon's lovers did not find what they were looking for. So don't give in to those temptations, friends. Don't settle for counterfeit love because you won't find what you're looking for there either. Which leads me to our final application for all of us. Delight in the source of true beauty. Delight in the source of true beauty. Friends, the world's false promises about marriage and sex and beauty will disappoint us. Marriage and and sex and beauty itself will disappoint us. And so we must look to the one who created marriage and who designed sex to be pleasurable and who makes all things beautiful in their time. Because that one also made you. And he knows your every longing. He knows your every desire. He knows your every struggle. He knows what is best for you in the wedding and in the waiting. He knows all of it. And while all of what this couple in our text have in marriage and sex are good things, the Bible is so clear, however, that the solution to our problems and our longings is not found in a spouse and is not found in sex. It's not found in marriage. The solution is God himself. God himself is the source of true beauty because God himself is true beauty. And if there's anything beautiful, flawless, or or intoxicatingly delightful in this world, it's only because it's a pale reflection of him. He is what we were made for. And, and, And all of our longings are longing for him. But there's there's a problem. Because Adam and Eve, back in that Garden of Eden... They chose to sin, and they were cast out from his presence. And the garden, with all its infinite pleasures, was guarded and locked. And in the same way, you and I have also chosen to sin. We have, we have likewise forfeited our access to that paradise and to God himself. By our selfishness and rebellion, we chose to deny ourselves what we most needed and what we most longed for. But again... God knows our every need. And his love is greater than our sin. And that's why he sent his son Jesus into this world. And through his death on a Roman cross that we sung about this morning, Jesus took the penalty that we deserved and we gained access to that which was his. Through Christ, we have again again been welcomed into paradise with God. And that's not all. Because the Bible tells us that not only have we been restored to God's presence, but that when Christ returns a second time, which he has promised to do, we will be so unified with him and so intimately connected to God himself that we will be married to Christ. 
In fact, it's not that our marriage to Christ will be like our marriages now. It's that our marriages now are mere signposts that we might have even the smallest idea of what our marriage to Christ will be like. That kind of love is overwhelming to even consider, right? Indeed, it's almost intoxicating. So eat, friends, drink and be drunk with the love of God. Delight in the source of true beauty. We're going to do that this morning together by taking part in communion, the Lord's table. So, so worship team, if, if uh, you would be so kind to come up at this time. Each, each month, we as a church family take communion together as a reminder of what Jesus has done for us in the past and what we look forward to in the future. This simple meal of bread and juice is here as a mere signpost so that we might have even the smallest idea of what the wedding banquet with Christ will be like. It will be a banquet, friends, that that never ends. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, please refrain from joining with us in this meal. Instead, take time to remain seated and, and reflect on what you've heard today, and especially of the delight of God and in his son, Jesus Christ. You too can know that your relationship with God is restored. You too can find something so much greater than even the greatest of earthly marriages. So why not come to Christ and find and delight in what your heart truly desires? Let me pray for us, and then I'm going to invite invite people to come up and and take the elements together. God, thank you for the song. Thank you for this couple. Thank you for Christ. Everything we've read here about the love of this man and this woman in this text is just a pale reflection, a pale shadow of, of your love for us. Would you bless us now as we uh, gather and take these elements together and remember what Jesus did for us to make that kind of love possible for a relationship with you to be restored. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.